Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows that I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. Let's talk about the, uh, the, the fact. It really is a fact. The more difficulty Donald Trump faces with criminal charges and trials, as well as possible convictions in prison time, the more his supporters appear ready to rally to his side. Professor Dante Scala joins us from the University of New Hampshire. Professor Scala is an expert in democracy and presidential politics. Professor Scala, thank you very much. How are you? You're welcome. I'm good. I hope you are, too. Yes, I am. How's your country? How's my country? It's, <laughs> it's in a strange place right now, and, uh, and I think we're just, as we watch for you know the first votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, I find myself in a familiar position, which is to say to myself, you know, is this the last straw when it comes to Donald Trump? Uh, and are people ready to detach themselves from the former president? But I say that to myself, knowing that I've asked myself some version of that question basically for the last decade. And every time I've bet that it was the last straw, I turned out to be wrong. So... You're an expert in democracy, and uh, democracy is is what we we built our lives on, our nations on. We're very fortunate to live in democratic states. You're an expert in the presidency. I, I gather you. I mean, obviously, none of us have ever seen anything like this. How do you explain, or how can, is it possible to explain, why Mr. Trump continues to engender such tremendous support, regardless of the difficulties he finds himself in? I've never seen this sort of, you know, we call it a cult of personality uh, in American politics. And probably the best analogy that I've thought of over this last year, uh, as I've watched yet again, you know, it looked as if at the beginning of the year that Republicans were ready to move on from Donald Trump. You know, Ron DeSantis looked like he was a viable alternative and so forth. But I have to remind myself that for a lot of voters, Donald Trump uh, is what Ronald Reagan was back in the 1970s and really the 1980s. He is, Trump is the most dominant figure that we've seen in the Republican Party since Reagan. And obviously a lot of differences between the two, but in terms of dominance, right, he's the person. and. You can't get over, you know, you can't underestimate people's habits. And Republicans are really just in the habit of voting for Trump. So there are those hardcore supporters who get all the attention, right? Uh, You know, we call them, you know, MAGAs. But there's this middle group of Republicans who aren't necessarily part of this cult of personality, but just like Reagan, they're in the habit of voting for him. They like him. And they're the ones who I think we have to watch over the next several months. Are they ready to move on? I'd say as of today, no, but we'll see in a few months. So given what we know now and what we see now, 
Is it your um, view that Donald Trump would have an even or better than even chance of of uh, getting the party nomination regardless of what may happen? And, you know, people have speculated. So if he's found guilty in some of these particular cases, the, uh, the uh, district attorney in Atlanta wants to go to court early October. Uh, if he's found guilty and should he be sentenced to prison, this makes your head spin. Mr. Trump has said he would continue the campaign from inside a prison cell. Could all of this happen? And if it did, would would it just generate more support for him, do you think? Yeah, I think as of now, he has a, a better than even chance to be uh, the Republican nominee. In fact, I think, you know, if you were a betting man, you know, if you were offered the field against Donald Trump, I would I would insist on six to one, seven to one odds, you know, for the whole field against Trump, I think, at this point. Uh, It's unclear, right? I mean, and part of it is due to timing, right? We don't, when these court dates are going to begin for the former president is a bit in flux right now. And Republicans start voting both here in New Hampshire and Iowa, the middle of January. So it's very possible that will start voting in January, and none of these trials will be decided yet, but along the way, that voters will get more and more information, right, as these trials unfold. But we don't know what that's going to be like right now. So once again, there's this fact that I think there are a lot of voters who are ready to to ride or die, so to speak, with Donald Trump. But then there are those people in the middle who Maybe they have a few doubts, but they give the benefit of the doubt to Trump, and it's going to take a lot for them to change their mind. For me, the interesting scenario is what if, you know, there's a trial, let's say the January 6th trial going on at the very beginning of the calendar year in the days before Republicans in Iowa begin the caucus, where those voters in the middle I talked about, right, they don't love, love Trump, but they, they like him. Would they get a a case of cold feet, where they start to say, hey, I don't know that we want a nominee who's going to be on trial off the campaign trail for most of the, or a good part of the next year. That's not such a great idea. It's an unknown, isn't it? It's just a big unknown. Uh, but but at what point, and we started out talking about democracy, at what point does the will of the people take precedence over virtually anything else. If, if, if he has the support to become the nominee, should he have the support to win the presidential election, then what? People, ultimately, that's the democratic answer to the question, is it not? Yeah. I mean, I still, I mean, if it, got, if it comes to Trump being the nominee in the general election, I'm still of the mind that given that the U.S. economy looks good right now, uh, and given the current president's good health, which, you know, for an 80-year-old man, is have to have a couple doubts about that. But I, I still think the will of the people would reign in the sense that I, I think uh, the former president would have real difficulties winning a general election. But it's surely not, you know, impossible. Yeah. It's, there's a good chance of that. And... You know, and if he won with convictions on his record and so forth, I mean, we're really in 
we're really in unknown territory, not just as a democracy, but as a as a constitutional democracy. And as a population, right? right? As, a, as a national population. It's a national, well, yeah, I mean, it's a national population, and it's a, but we've never seen the Constitution kind of tested mm-hmm. like that. I mean, yeah. where, where do we go from there? Mm-hmm. You know, can a president pardon himself? You know, all those sorts of questions, which has always been kind of what if for law school exams uh, would come to the fore. Putin said he had known Prigozhin for a very long time and called him a man with a complicated fate. Many speculate the Russian president had a role in the deadly crash, but it's also possible, according to experts, that Prigozhin felt he was in trouble after leading a mutiny against Russian military leaders back in June and faked his own death. So often nothing is what it seems on the surface, and what the Russian state says is often very different from what's happened in real life. Ukraine's president wasted no time in stating his country had no role in the crash. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Ukraine or one of its allies would be blamed for downing the plane. Crystal Gavansing, Global News, London. So here's what I think. The sun rises in the east, yeah? Still does that every day, doesn't it? So I think with the predictability of the sun rising in the east, you can pretty damn well predict that Prigozhin is dead because Putin pulled the trigger. And what I found particularly interesting is the fact that Prigozhin's plane was for sale last week, and on the day he died, apparently in the morning, some representatives of a Russian airline got onto the plane to have a look at it. So what do you think? And then an American investigator who's done a lot of crash investigations on planes looked at some of the footage and said, well, there are holes in the plane that looked like they came from the outside. Hmm. And the wing, when they, when they saw the video of the wing, it was a clean shear. Now, what are the chances that all the bolts let go at the same time and the wing just floated to the ground? I think Mr. Prigozhin and his fellow passengers and fellow co-founder of the Wagner Group mercenaries, they paid the price for their, their boarded run at Moscow. So we have that. And uh, this, this is another development. Of course, a major development in the war uh, with uh, Ukraine is fighting for its existence with Russia. There's also the story that the Russian military members, there's a Russian military unit fighting with Ukraine, led by former Russian special forces commanders. They're trying to take down Putin. They have now invited leaderless Wagner mercenaries to join them in the fight against Putin from inside Ukraine. My question is, will the Ukrainian military put up with this? Because the Wagner mercenaries are alleged to have committed atrocities against Ukrainian citizens and military members. So what are the chances the Ukrainian military is going to say, yeah, that's fine, you can come in, you can, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome you. Uh, I just don't see that happening. There's another development. Ukraine will now be receiving what it's been asking for, for since the beginning of this invasion by uh, Putin. U.S. built F-16 fighter planes about 60 of them from European NATO members. 
That's going to change the deal in the sky a little bit, because F-16 is a, is a really excellent fighting platform. What else do we have? Well, let's talk to our guest about that, Alexander Sherba, former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and member of the Ukrainian diplomatic mission to the United States. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts, joins us quite regularly. From Ukraine, they're seven hours ahead of us. Alexander Thary, thank you very much for, for joining us. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Roy? I'm well. Uh, I, I'm not at all sad that uh, Prigozhin's gone from this planet, but what's your sense of what happened? Well, quite frankly, uh, uh, shortly after this, uh, you know, uh, putsch in Russia or the attempted putsch in Russia, uh, I was visiting France. I was on a, the conference and there were all kinds of, you know, very liberal, very soft uh, uh, intellectuals at that conference. And all of them were saying Prigozhin won't survive two or three months. I mean, these Europeans who are used to a different, you know, um, to, to measure life by different measures than in Russia or even in Ukraine, they were absolutely, uh, you know, convinced in that. And I was saying, you know what, I cannot imagine that uh, Putin would be this blunt, uh, but apparently he is, because I have no other explanation uh, for Prigozhin's death, but uh, you know, uh, the, the the person who controls everything in Russia. And, uh, well, it just uh, it just shows how um, uh, scrupulous and how, how, how basically he threw the caution to the wind and he, he doesn't uh, care about uh, how the world would see it. Uh, most importantly, uh, how Russians would see it. And Russians, Russians want to see... Putin as this strong man, and he just reinforced this uh, picture of him. Yeah, he projects power, doesn't he, in uh, in Russia? Yeah. Plus, I don't think that he would have enjoyed that when uh, Prigozhin took his abortive run at Moscow, that the people in Rostov in Russia were welcoming the Wagner mercenaries. Basically, he was second second most popular person in Russia, and he could... Uh, uh, if if Russia was in any way a democracy, he could be a front runner or you know a competitor for Putin. Uh, anyways, uh, I, I think I think uh, there are many political uh, psychological uh, reasons uh, for Putin to do it. But still, you know, it's so obvious and so blunt. Uh, I think I, I saw the number seventeen uh, higher uh, officers in Russian army. Uh, including General Sorovikin, were um, removed from their positions because they, in one way or another, sympathized or liked uh, or supported Prigozhin. Um, so even from this viewpoint, uh, I mean, I thought that Putin would wait up maybe a month or two or three, uh, a little bit longer, but no, he did it now. Yeah. It's like a mob hit. Um, how does this change the equation in the fight with Moscow, because Putin did rely on the Wagner mercenaries to supplement his rather poorly performing troops. Does this change anything? Well, the good news for Ukraine is that Wagner Group is basically uh, right now incapable of, you know, fighting the fight. Uh, and they were uh, the most, you know, uh, capable uh, military unit in the Russian army. By the way, 
uh, another military unit, smaller in size, but uh, very fanatical, the neo-Nazi Rusic group uh, led by uh, Alexei Milchakov uh, announced uh, yesterday that they are stopping their fight because the uh, a close friend of the field commander who ran this group was uh, detained in Finland. And as long as that story isn't resolved by Russian government, they are not fighting for Russian government. So it's uh, another, you know, piece of uh, puzzle falling uh, away from for Russia. So it's 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 good that Wagner uh, isn't isn't a factor anymore, or more or less uh, uh, anymore, especially right now where Ukraine is fighting the uh, toughest part of this war, uh, trying to cut this uh, Azov Sea uh, corridor uh, through and basically to cut uh, Crimea from, you know, uh, military supply. Yeah, let's come back and talk about that in a minute. But I just just have one more question. Russian military members, this is unit. Uh, unit what's the name of the Russian uh, military unit that's fighting for Ukraine? Uh, it's uh, the uh, Russian Volunteer Corps. Okay. And they are commanded by former Spetsnaz, um, Russian Special Forces Commanders, and I saw um, I saw a, a video actually of the Wagner mercenaries who are now leaderless because both of the leaders of the Wagner group are gone. These um, these Russians in inside Ukraine, this military unit, they're inviting the Wagner mercenaries to join them in the fight against Putin. How will Ukraine's military accept these individuals if they do it? Because the Wagner group are accused of atrocities against both the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian civilians? Quite frankly, I don't see uh, this happening uh, because, uh, well, uh, Wagner Group, uh, uh, they are mercenaries and Ukraine won't pay them uh, to fight. Uh, so, uh, and they are, you know, they, they don't have any ideology uh, to fight for, um, only money. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, they are hated in Ukraine, and uh, every Ukrainian soldier sees uh, them as an enemy. Uh, plus, uh, they have lost uh, numerous uh, thousands and thousands of their own comrades in, uh, in the battle uh, for... Uh, uh, what's, what's, what's the city? Uh, I just... Uh, uh, in Donbass, so, right, um, right, right. and uh, therefore, I don't see, Car quite frankly, the emotions are, but you know, for the, the battle for Bakhmut, and yeah. the, I don't see the emotions are running too high uh, for these, you know, mercenaries to come all of a sudden and fight for Ukraine. Okay, Alexander. So, how is the counteroffensive going? Let's talk about that first, please. And let's add to the to the equation. I know you're not getting them today or tomorrow, but the F-16s are coming. How much of a change is that going to make? Well, this is the toughest fight of this war, of course. Uh, uh, people uh, often compare uh, this counteroffensive that we're having right now to the uh, offense, counteroffensive we had last year, uh, during which the Kharkiv Oblast was liberated, which was, which was uh, mostly um, due to the element of surprise. We Russian, we struck war where Russians didn't expect, and we made enormous strides there, uh, and the whole oblast was liberated. Here is the other case. Here is a whole area which we need to retake, and Russians knew we will fight, we will go, go for this, you know, uh, Azov Sea corridor. 
So they had uh, um, almost a year uh, to prepare for our counteroffensive. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we have been waiting for rather a long time for, you know, sufficient weapons to arrive. Unfortunately, the uh, aircraft never arrived uh, until now, until, until the coming months. And nevertheless, despite the superiority of Russian troops, uh, despite the, the area uh, that got mined, uh, which basically can be compared to an area of a um, small European state, um, Ukrainians are breaking through. This week was uh, brought a couple of very, very uh, positive news. First of all, the village of Robotina was retaken. And from that village, it's 20 kilometers to the strategic city of uh, Tokmak. I remind you, there are three strategic strategic cities that we need to retake in that area to cut through that carried cor corridor. That's uh, Militopol, that's Berdansk, and that's Tokmak. Tokmak would be the first one retaken by Ukrainians. It's it's It will come, and it's coming at a normal cost, but Ukrainian army is uh, moving ahead and... Uh, uh, all, all we ask our Western partners about: don't despair, don't you, don't overuse the word stalemate. There is no stalemate. We are moving ahead. Yeah, you yeah. are. I, I just remember when the when the Russians invaded 22nd February of uh, 2022. The the prediction was: oh, they'll be in Kiev in 72 hours. They'll be in Kiev in 24 hours. Where are they? They're running back to their being pushed back into their into their own country. They're being pushed back into Russia. Um, so as, as we look at these developments now, how is the effort going to, and, and, and I don't want to forget about the numbers of soldiers, military uh, members, men and women you've lost in your military and how many Ukrainian families have lost a family member. It's in the millions of families, and, uh, I understand. But how is the uh, effort going forward to supply a very hungry world with the grain Ukraine has, and which Russia is still attempting to stop being exported to the world. Well, uh, the, our casualty in this war is uh, in the uh, it's, it's uh, in the uh, dozens of uh, thousands. Uh, um, so it's we uh, don't have the number, but uh, it's not in millions. Uh, but uh, the number of people who were impacted, including the families, of course, it's in millions. Every practically everybody. Uh, knows uh, or is related to someone uh, who who was killed in this war. So oh, the, the, yeah. the death toll is enormous. Mm. Uh, the grain uh, problem, the the the, the um, uh, this you know grain agreement that we had, and then Russia uh, stepped out of it. And uh, right now, uh, Ukraine is trying to uh, go ahead without uh, Russia's permission and without Russia's say so. And uh, it's uh, happening. Uh, at least uh, this week, uh, there was a second ship that uh, went uh, through uh, to Ukrainian port uh, uh, that uh, basically went, uh, broke through this, you know, blockade by Russia. Plus, uh, there are, uh, you know, of other ways to bring Ukrainian grain to the global market. It's difficult. It's, it makes the whole effort much more costly, of course, uh, and it's, it costs money to Ukrainian budget, but uh, that's the cost, the part of the cost that Ukraine is paying in this war. 
I'm stunned by the court ruling. You know, it opens up with a declaration of moral virtue, essentially, on behalf of Canadian law, a declaration of the fact that we enjoy freedom of speech, followed immediately by the proclamation that that can be limited in any way, essentially, that the colleges and the professional organizations see fit. The Jordan Peterson case on the Ontario Court of Appeal, well, not District Court, three judges sided with the College of Psychologists of Ontario and ruled Peterson must attend social media training or lose his license to practice psychology in the province, which he hasn't done for years. Ari Goldkind joins us. Criminal lawyer, media t- commentator. Ari, my head's spinning. I, I can't believe three judges uh, determined the way they did. What's your take? Well, I can believe it. I knew it as soon as I saw the panel, Roy. I knew that it was over for Mr. Peterson, first of all. It's the Ontario Divisional Court who ruled unanimously. The judge who wrote the decision was the former treasurer of the U- of the Law Society of Ontario, changed the name from the Law Society of Upper Canada, was instrumental in equity and diversion programs, was fundamentally uh, a key voice in the move of the Law Society to what's called a statement of principles, where all lawyers have to espouse principles on the very far left of the left wing. And the decision was one that I think was basically a decision that was going to be arrived at no matter what, and then worked backwards to sort of come up with a judicial framework for it. And here's why it happened, and let me just tie into your intro, Roy. It wasn't for the divisional court to say what its own opinion would be. The premise here of the divisional court, if this makes sense, is to say, look, did the college act reasonably? Did the college act proportionally to say, even though we have this thing in Canada called a charter, this thing that seems to come into play depending on, you know, who, who's invoking it on a day? I mean, Roy, you and I talk a lot about crime. Every time there's a crime or a charter challenge or a cop turned off their body cam or somebody got roughed up at a police station, the charter seems to apply. But what the court said here, and this is why I think the decision is so problematic is it gives no judicial analysis to, wait a minute, does the college have the right to say Jordan Peterson in his off-duty, on Twitter, on Joe Rogan, from his toilet, can't say what he wants, even if, Roy, this is the key, the decision makes clear that even if Jordan Peterson is saying things that are valid or true, It doesn't matter if it offends one side of the political spectrum. It's degrading, hurtful, demeaning speech, and therefore it reduces people's trust in clinical psychology. A more bizarre argument I cannot think of, because the one thing that you know about Jordan Peterson, Roy, is that all he's done is increase people's interest in clinical psychology, by a factor of probably millions. I could go on, but I'll pause there. It's a really, really troubling decision. And for your listeners who haven't read it, read it. I've posted it and go look at the seven comments that the court picks out that they go after him for. And one of them that he has to be reeducated for North Korea or Russia style is because he says an extremely heavy woman on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue will not be beautiful and isn't beautiful 
no matter how much authoritarian dictation there is to think that she is. Maybe you don't like that comment. Maybe you think it's full of chutzpah. But the idea that that deserves re-education, my oh my, what country am I living in? Well, there's there's another one where an individual uh, who's worried about overpopulation of the planet, this individual had uh, concerns about overpopulation, and Jordan Peterson wrote, tweeted back, you're free to leave at any point. Well, that's exactly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, world, but that's exactly the kind of thing I would send back. Well, and again, you're lucky to not be a regulated professor. I mean, look, look, Roy, let's make this really honest to your listeners, okay, across Canada. While Mr. Peterson is licensed, he doesn't practice, he doesn't have clients, there were 13 complaints over eight years, all from people who didn't like his tweeting, that's what he's being re-educated for. While you and I speak, Roy, and you may have seen this yesterday, your colleague Joe Warmington wrote a great piece about it. That teacher in Milton with the triple, quadruple, quintuple D synthetic prosthetic breasts, that person is now welcome to go back and teach starting next week. Well, that's a licensed professor. So the point of what I'm saying is, on his off time, not in practice, not with clients, not with patients, he's tweeting things, whether you like them or not, that's in the eye of the beholder. That's the idea of living in this country versus Yemen or Saudi Arabia. But another licensed professional wearing quintuple D prosthetic breasts on the taxpayer dime in front of children, that is we're all bending over backwards to accommodate. This is why this is such a Kafka-esque Orwellian thing. And again, I invite people to go to the decision and look at how short shrift this divisional court unanimously said the charter was. I can assure you, Roy, if, the, if Jordan Peterson's views were left-wing, were different about Elliot or Ellen Page, were pro-left, were pro-this, we would not be having this conversation. It's all because his views are not left-wing, and that why that is why he needs to be re-educated. It is extremely concerning, Roy, and I'll end my answer here, because while Jordan Peterson can afford the fight, he's worth millions and millions of dollars. You are being listened to, Roy, right now by lawyers, doctors, dentists, massage therapists, psychologists, you name it, none of whom feel free to speak in Canada because they cannot risk being censured and losing their ability to feed their That is really scary, and you're right. That is really... And you know, Ari, I was thinking about this. So this decision is brought down. Surely the judges in that divisional court, all three of them knew, that there would be tremendous public pushback. The people would say, hold on, this is wrong. This just isn't right. There would be professional pushback, such as you're delivering. Didn't matter. But Roy, they don't care because... That's what I said. They didn't matter. No, you have to understand the judiciary. You have to understand how popular and how many dinner parties you get invited to when you're the equity, diversion, inclusion, this, that, or the other uh, minder. You get invited to nothing if you're a person who talks about crime, immigration, you know, all of these other things. So while you express that to your listeners and you have a very valid point, people don't understand this business. And this business rewards only one side of the political equation. And try being a criminal defense lawyer, trying a case of a he said, she said, me too, sex assault. You're dead before you basically get in there. This is the world we're in. Most people don't know it. But as I said, Roy, Jordan Peterson is worth a ton. You know who was the biggest winner 
the day Jordan Peterson's case went not Jordan Peterson's favor, the biggest winner was Jordan Peterson. The biggest loser was every other licensed professional who cannot afford to not be able to pay their mortgage or put food on the table. Yeah. Message sent. Message delivered. Message understood by people who now are holding back on what they really have the charter right, guaranteed under the charter, Section 2D, they are guaranteed under the charter, freedom of expression. The Supreme Court did issue an exception for hate speech. Then you have to ask yourself if what Mr. Peterson posted is, is hate speech. And remember, Roy, the court made it clear, even if what he said was a valid and honest opinion, or more interestingly, correct and true, it did not matter. Let that sink in, Roy. So let me ask you this. Shortly after Justin Trudeau became prime minister, I think it was just months, I posted to Twitter, this prime minister is a twit. And somebody wrote back to me saying, we're going to report you to the Human Rights Commission. And I said, and I wrote, wrote back basically saying, go for it and do it today. Um, I, I guess I probably was, was outside the bounds of what I'm ex- by the, this court's uh, measure. I was out of bounds, right? Would you think? Would you think? No, I would not think that. But you know, let's tie this back to Mr. Peterson, who's our subject. One of the things that you're aware, Roy, and your listeners may not be aware of. Remember, I said the seven things he was called on the carpet for. Yeah, read the decision. Yeah. One of them is calling Justin Trudeau's former chief of staff and a very, very bright very feisty guy named Gerald Butts, very able to defend himself and give as good as he gets. Jordan Peterson called him a prick. P-R-I-K. You got it, sir. And he now has to be re-educated on to that. Now, one of Jordan Peterson's mistakes was he admitted to the tribunal that he should moderate his own language. I thought that was a thing that really came back to hurt him. But if you're now being re-educated at the threat of losing your license, because you call a public figure like Gerald Butts, who calls everybody he doesn't like a bunch of names himself, I'm sorry, hiding this because you're part of a profession or a licensed person? I mean, again, Roy, the better question is, what country are we living in okay, let me... where we are treating adults like children? Sorry, well, let me just uh, read a text here from Kevin in Alberta. Donald Trump, this is not going to get mad at me, folks. I'm just reading a text that came in. Donald Trump is certainly the most irritating, stupid person on the face of the earth. That said, Jordan Peterson is easily the most irritating, intelligent person on the planet. That's from Kevin in Alberta. Ari, I'm just looking at a, a, an ex- sort of an editorial op-ed written by uh, John Carpe, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. He was on the air with me yesterday. He writes, uh, the Jordan Peterson situation is no different for Nurse and Amy Hamm currently being prosecuted by the British Columbia College of Nurses and midwives for stating publicly that there are only two sexes and that women deserve their own safe space, washrooms, change rooms, female-only sporting events, female prisons, etc., where biological males may not enter. I yesterday spoke for half an hour with April Hutchinson, um, Canadian Team Canada uh, gold medal winning uh, women's weightlifter who has a great issue, great concern, with a biological male who identifies as a woman participating in and winning women's uh, weightlifting events. These, these, this is kind of a, this is like a package deal. So that said, say what you wish about that, but tell me, please, where are we headed as a society? 
if our freedom of expression is so fragile? I will. Let me start by saying John Carpe is the guest on my show this coming week. So he and I had a discussion about this very piece. And he's somebody doing very, very important. Tell me about your show, really. What's your show? The Ari Goldkind Show on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167, where I'm a little bit more me versus other parts of my media life. But he is the guest, and we talk about Jordan Peterson and my views of it this week. So he's somebody I have great respect for. And as you know, Roy, he gets a lot of heat for taking positions. Now, I want to talk about your listeners' text for a minute. I always respect people who listen to people's shows. He used a very important word there called irritating. Okay. Yep. And again, somebody else at the forefront of this, you know, female male thing is Riley Gaines. I've spent a lot of time talking to her. Your listeners should look up. She's an extremely brave, impressive young woman who pushed back on the swimmer, Leah Thomas, who won by about 16,000 Olympic sized pool lengths. Compare that to the weightlifting story. But to your listeners text, how does society advance unless there are irritating people to move it forward, to challenge the orthodoxy? to challenge the zeitgeist, to challenge the Biden, to challenge the Kareem Jean-Pierre, or to challenge the Trump. How do you move forward as a society unless there are people to say, hold on a minute, I don't want to be popular. I don't want to be loved, maybe feared or respected, but I want to be thought-provoking. And here's why I make the point going back to Jordan Peterson, Roy. And maybe this is a digression, but I think you'll appreciate this. Why is Jordan Peterson massively famous with millions of followers, millions of book dollars sold, and YouTube views out the millions. Well, Jordan Peterson wasn't a name that anybody had heard of seven years ago where he was a professor on the U of T campus, okay? Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who he was. What did he do that got him this fame? Did he do something crazy? Did he solve cancer? Did he solve the Rubik's Cube in 13 seconds? No. He said, You can't tell me what pronoun to call you. You can live your best life. You can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to be compelled to speak how you want me to speak. Is that a crazy viewpoint? Is that something that is anything even irritating? I would think 97% of Canadians who can speak without fear would say, that's a perfectly valid viewpoint. I mean, Matt Walsh, the great commentator, said, if I have to call you something that doesn't sit right with me, You have to call me handsome and brilliant. This world, because you asked me where we're going, Roy, I am, full disclosure to your listeners, I am a pessimist about where we're going. When you look at demographics, when you look at crime, when you look at immigration in this country, where you look at who really has the power, and it's all the groups who say they don't. All the groups that say they're marginalized, 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 They're the ones in control of everything from the judiciary to the government, to speech, to the colleges that are the premise of our discussion here. Again, I didn't say anything about the judge in Peterson that isn't on his own biography when he was appointed to the bench or made treasurer of the law society. They're his words. You literally could Google him and they're his words. Fine judge, thoughtful man, decent man. I'm sure doing what he thought was right. But it's right there. I am a pessimist, Roy, because the people I think who are killing this country and putting it into the ground are the very people also demanding and commanding that you cannot complain about how and why this country is being put into the ground. Because if you complain about it, you're going to be censored, 
censured, okay. or worse, called a bunch of names that make everybody shut up because they don't want to be called those names. I know I'm taking my life into my own hands by interrupting Taylor Swift, but I got to do it. It's a talk show. It's not where I used to do years ago when I was a rock jock and we said, while the others are talking, we're rocking, but it's the other way around. Let's get at the key issue here, the meat of the matter. We're going to talk music. We were going to do that last weekend, but the wildfires were so significant that we um, we completely changed our programming. And Eric Alper, thatericalper.com, 16-time Juno Award winner, nominated six times as Publicist of the Year during Canadian Music Week and has one of the absolutely best Twitter sites at that Eric Alper has kindly come decided to come on the program this weekend. How are you, Eric? I'm good. How are you? That well, was such a good intro. I should have you do my publicity. Hey, listen, I'll do whatever you want. It's <laughs> what I do, man. No, I, I just, I just, I value you, and I've just really become a fan of your social media presence. And I don't want you to be retrained, okay? No retraining of Eric Alper. Uh, it's great stuff, really great stuff. So before we get into some of the other meat of the matter that I want to talk to you about, and 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 I sent you an email on this about what what is it that, that creates the I don't know the sound, the dynamic, the presence. What is it? Uh, publicity it will play a large part, a major part, as you well know, in the creation of an artist or a band that just keeps on going, that keeps on turning out, churning out hit after hit after hit year after year, decade after decade, versus an artist who, you know, they're successful, but they kind of plod along. They have a hit here and a hit there and a song here that kind of wanders up the charts a bit and then falls back off. And then there's the one-hit wonders. They arrive and they play, I mean, they got a song everybody really gets into when they say, oh, I can't wait for the next one. And the next one comes and everybody goes, Right, um, and then it comes I, the I next think, one, and nobody nobody yeah, listens to it. Having the lead singer not sleep with the drummer's wife is probably a really good way Who are you talking to about? have a band extended. But, you, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, let me put you this way. Have you ever watched a really great movie, and then at the end of the credits, you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and you're like, what do these people do? I do, yeah, That's, absolutely. Any one of them could have messed up the movie. And when you look at the music industry, it's it almost works in the same way. So many hundreds of people working in the music industry, from the manager to the booking agent to the 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 radio pluggers to to the publicist, they all have to be working together all at the same time with the same goal. And the artist has to be up for it. The absolute sheer laser focused determination and ego to survive in the music industry is unparalleled. When you take a look at the top 20 highest grossing artists of all time in terms of tour dates, you've got Elton John, U2, Guns N' Roses, more U2, The Police, um, and artists like that tend to be, Roger Waters is on this list, artists that tend to be over 60. And so you think, well, you know, what makes them so great? And artists that have a one-hit wonder, like Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners or Soft Cell's Tainted Love. And I think it would really come down to not just the musical excellence, but I think it's the adaptability 
I think when you look at Elton John, there are so many different styles and different um, uh, different kind of flavors of Elton John. Do you like the singer-songwriter stuff of the 70s? Do you like the pop stuff of the 80s? Do you like it when, you know, he got back to a little bit of basics in the 90s? Or somebody like you too, who goes from... Um, straight-ahead rock band who's angry, who's fueled by the music of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, and then 10 years later end up with Octung Baby completely alienating their core base audience, but finds a whole new one in the fly in mysterious ways and becomes a little bit more EDM. So I think the ability to, to move with the times certainly have to help. David Bowie is a perfect example of that, too. What is it that's created such an endearing... Um, and caring and uh, uh, incredibly positive response for Taylor Swift. What is it about her and her music, or is it beyond that? I think her songs are great. I mean, there's they're just no denying that even from the very beginning of her career when she was 12 years old and, and writing lyrics on MySpace, she was able to connect with total strangers who were going through exactly the same things that she was going through. And now that she's 30... She's able to write different kind of songs going from pop to country and back to pop. Um, she's got a hugely engaged fan base, as we all know, and taking a look at how many people did not get so far tickets to Taylor Swift. Her business side is astonishing. You know, the fact that she understands the music business side of the industry is absolutely crucial to not going bankrupt and to not doing the things that you would need to do. She also embraced technology really, really well as, you know, when the, um, you know, the high profile time when she lost her catalog to a venture capitalist company who outbid her, she went ahead and re-recorded all of the, uh, you know, so far five of the six of her last album that she doesn't own in order to own them. She could not maybe have done that 20, 25 years ago when you had to get a big studio and it was just impossible to do. So she's done everything that you need to do so correctly that I think 50 years from now, we're still going to be marveling at how was she able to achieve all of this. Yeah, she's 30, eh? Yeah. Who was it who said, don't trust anybody over the age of 30? I think we all did back in the hippie days. <laughs> yeah, but Mick Jagger, wasn't it Jagger? Wasn't it Jagger? Did. Huh? Yeah. It was Jagger, wasn't it? Mick Jagger, yeah. Well, it, well, I mean, Mick Jagger also said that he's not going to be singing I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the time he's 30. Well, have a, hold on, hold on. Have a listen. So as the song would end, I would come on and say, now sports and weather together. Oh man, it's Eric. Eric, it's still a great song. Oh yeah, and and the fact that Mick Jagger has not had a problem with having satisfaction since he was thirteen years old, it gives you everything that you need to know about making these artists get up on stage and yeah. singing songs in their eighties. In their eighties. Their eighty. In their eighties. And, and, and what was it? What he'll the, still outdance you. He'll still outsing you. He'll still outright you. And, uh, you know, apparently the, the thought is that he runs the length of eight football fields every show. No, I, I know that. And he, yeah. he's, he's a marathon runner. Yeah. I used to play a little bit. And then uh, I saw, walked out on the football field at uh, McMaster University a number of years ago. And I, I just looked, uh, looked down the field, and I thought, damn, that's a long way. <laughs> <laughs> you 
and that was just one time. So how many times does he do it? Yeah, and you still have to catch the ball. And oh yeah, oh, that's that's the other part that was a problem. <laughs> that's the other part that was a problem. Yeah, I could have been in the white room with black curtains near the station. Eric Alper, at that Derek Alper. Tell us about this one, Eric. Well, I mean, you know, that would be the sound of, of Creep. And, uh, you know, that's the band that Eric Clapton decided to go a little bit a little bit uh, rock and uh, grow his hair out and take a lot of drugs. And uh, there you go. Then you end up with White Room. Oh, it was just amazing. Uh, Ginger so Baker. So good. Who was the third? There was Ginger Baker. Who was the third one? Uh, Jack Bruce was the bass yeah, of the band. Yeah, 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 Jack Bruce. Yep, and I, then uh, oh, later on, they were doing really, really well. They had a lot of hits like that one, and then uh, then they saw the band, the band, yeah, um, in, in concert, right. and said, um, we need to just split Cream up. I mean, this was just so devastating to him because he thought that they that Eric Clapton had lost the plot when it came to rock music. And he took a look at Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm and the guys in the band and said, that's what I need to do. I need that's to get amazing. back to the basics of music, of rock music, of blues, of roots music. And he did. And he ended up slowing things down a little bit, yeah. uh, turning down the volume and kind of created, you know, 25 years worth of music. Yeah, no, and totally based on seeing that. There's seldom a day goes by that I don't listen to uh, Eric Clapton now. I probably would have come off that... Uh, Cream song, White Room, with blue skies and green lights to you and yours. Yeah. Remember those little phrases in rock radio in the in the day? <laughs> blue skies and green lights to you and yours. Uh, let's talk to Randy, who's in Calgary. How are you, Randy? Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. What's your question? Well, I drive truck, and I'm, pardon me, I'm just sitting here at the warehouse, and I've got a load uh, later tonight. But anyway, talking about old songs... Uh, Speaking of Eric Clapton, you never <clears throat> you never hear "Lay Down Sally" anymore. <laughs> well, it's a talk show, so we're, I just grabbed the big one from way back when. I, you know, yeah, no, know. that was a fantastic song. Yeah. But anyway, uh, speaking of one-hit wonders, there's yeah. a couple, three or four that give us one. Just give us one. Okay. Uh, how about uh, "I Wonder What You're Doing Tonight" by the Foreman Young Band? Okay, hold on, Eric. What about that? <laughs> wonder what you're doing tonight. I love that one. Um, the, the the ability, you know what, the, the ability for people to just throw throw these songs out there. Where, uh, uh, give me give me some context. Tell me tell me the first time that you remember hearing that song. Well, I've got a, I've got a huge selection. I'm from Grand Prairie, Alberta, initially, but I've got a huge selection of 45s. And I love my turntable. So when's the first time you heard the Randy, when's the first time you heard that song? Uh, I heard it from, uh, you know, I don't recall. It's been so long ago. I think it was 1978. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, there was that Tommy Voice and Bobby Hart one um, that they did their, the original one of that. And then I think there was a couple of other, I think Gary Lewis did a cover of that as well. Uh, But that's also a great song. It's amazing what songs survive. Classic rock. Guys, I want you I, I want you both I want you both please, Randy and Eric. Here's a one hit one hit wonder. Everybody thought this group was going to go on to great things. They didn't, but here's the song that really well they crushed it with this one. How do you know? I mean, how do you how can you, how can you write that song and not follow up with a massive <laughs> 
a massive yeah. hit. You know, when it came to the knack, they had the songs okay. after that. The problem was is yep. that when that first album came out, the album cover looked pretty similar to the Beatles' Meet the Beatles. And the critics thought that they were just riding off of a record label concept of let's create another British invasion, even though that these guys are Americans. So magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream and Circus back in the 70s absolutely lambasted this band. It's like their version of Nickelback. Let's put that one. Okay, Randy, one sentence real quick. Okay, uh, they had Baby Talks Dirty, which was just as bigger, bigger. Baby Talks Dirty? You know my Baby Talks Dirty. Uh, I don't know. But sing it. Go and ahead. That? Go ahead. Sing. Yeah. Go to Randy, I sing. think about that one. But, but, I think it, it, it's... <laughs> oh, wow. There's... You guys are really... And, and then there was... There. Then there Randy, Randy's, Randy's got, Randy's oh, got a list right. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my sweetie loves a great, <laughs> an extra big beating. Well, that's why. Oh, you gosh. know? I mean, if, if you kind of treat was, women like then that, there was, and all of a sudden you may not get the radio play after okay, a couple you, of months. Okay, yes, we're talking about the Stones earlier. Do you remember what you're talking about? What you're talking about by the Blushing Brides? Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> see that band? When I was first getting into the clubs when I was 19, thinking mm-hmm. that this is, if these guys are this good, the Rolling Stones, when I have a chance to see them, are going to be 10 times better. Right, Randy, I appreciate you. Randy, Randy, you got to go. Randy. just like the Buddy. And then there's, then there's. Randy, I got to go. Randy, email me. Randy, I got to go. Uh, you can, Randy, you can email Eric. Where, what's the What's the email address, Eric? Uh, you, you know what? Just find find me on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. Yeah, go to go to Twitter or Facebook I, I, and find I, I, Eric Alpert. I don't Alper. know how to do any of that stuff. I drive truck. I'm okay. pacing the neck down. Okay, buddy. Uh, thank you so Thanks much for, for calling. calling. You're man. Absolute delight. Just wonderful. So are you? I always appreciate these segments, and I appreciate. I'm sorry to our other callers. Should have gone to calls earlier, but uh, I think you and I can talk about this stuff for hours. And, oh yeah. And unfortunately for the audience, we oh, can't. Yeah. Do you know what? You know what I remember. <laughs> I remember in the, the very first time I did radio, it was a rock radio, <clears throat> if we made a mistake on the air, we got fined five bucks. <gasps> that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. That can buy you a home back then. Well, yeah, by the end of the week, I had no <laughs> money left. I'd earned nothing. It all stayed with the station. At that, Eric Alper. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Roy. We'll talk Always to you. a great pleasure. Thank you, Eric Alper. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.